Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. With short introduction, Mike Wilson, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. He is cautious on the equity market. Mike Wilson, your Ellen Zatner has a negative 215,000 statistics for the jobs report. Maybe it's a one-off, maybe it's not. Fold in this American economy into your caution. You walk away from the bull case. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that the the bull case is always that uh, Goldilocks would persist into you know this year, and that was not our view. Our base case was that Goldilocks would be challenged, and of course, the bear case is that you you slide into something even worse than that. And I, I would say, you know, as we talked in this program last time, we were leaning more towards the bear than the bull. So, uh, so so what's going on? I mean, as you mentioned, you know, we now have a negative forecast for for non-farm payrolls tomorrow. Um, the question is, is it just an Omicron, you know, kind of final? Uh, pair back and, and hiring, or is it something bigger? You know, we've had this narrative of fire and ice, and we think it it's going to be icier. Um, you know, that doesn't mean recession. It doesn't mean negative payroll numbers for the next five months. But, you know, the idea that we're not going to have some payback here from what was a spectacular, you know, kind of rebound uh, during the pandemic, we think is naive. And you guys were talking about something I think that's really being overlooked, which is this bifurcation between the lower income cohorts and the upper income cohorts, you know, without the government transfers and with this inflationary burden, I mean, they are the ones bearing it and it's going to slow demand. Um, so I'm, I'm probably a bit more cautious on consumption in the first half of this year than my colleagues and also my uh, peers around the street. Mike, you and the team believe that fears over growth will overtake fears over interest rate hikes. And I wonder how that separates you from the rest of the street when it just comes to sector allocation beneath the surface of the S&P at the moment. So, you know, I think most people would argue that, you know, if we're going to have a slowdown, then you want to go right back into the, you know, high multiple growth stocks. And the problem with that analysis, in my view, or that conclusion, is that a lot of the growth stocks are also going to see a payback in demand. You know, I don't want to pick on one sector. I think it's pervasive across a lot of different sectors. But let's just take technology as an example. You know, technology is inherently a cyclical industry. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty old. I, I followed the industry, the industry for a long time. And I remember when it was treated as such. And for whatever reason now, I think people view technology as being, you know, that it's non-discretionary spending. It's not. And if you know, we see companies start to struggle with margins, there's going to be a pairback in spending and also a payback in spending from the overconsumption there, too. So I think the strategy that we're employing right now is high quality, but with a more defensive bias than a growth bias, because the defensive stocks, the stability of earnings is going to be more protected. Um, And they're expensive too, but they're not as expensive as some of the growth stocks still. Mike, how far have we gotten to your bear case, given some of the pitfalls that we've seen, the lack of a safety diet behind the likes of Facebook and now the sort of commensurate losses that we're seeing in uh, PayPal and also uh, Spotify? Yeah, I mean, okay, so let's let's get into it. I mean, you know, the fire scenario, I think everybody's on board with that. In fact, people are probably paying attention too much to that at the bond market's price for a lot of tightening. And the equity market is somewhat priced for that. I, I don't think that's the main issue. It's now the slowdown. And as I like to say, there's a little bit of Peloton in everyone. Okay, there's a little bit of Netflix in everyone. There's a little bit of PayPal in everyone, right? And now maybe there's a little bit of Facebook in everyone. So 
it's just broadening out. So I think if you would ask folks a month or two ago, Peloton was a one-off, they were a COVID beneficiary. But the reality is, is that a lot of businesses benefited from this sort of pull forward during yeah. COVID and the stimulus. So this is what we got to get through now, this sort of reset yeah. on expectations for growth. And so I, our bear case, look, our bear case, our, case, our base case for the year end is 4,400. Okay. Not very exciting. Our bear case is 3,900. But remember, you got to overshoot to the downside. So even in our, ba- even in our base case, we're going to probably trade sub 4,000 uh, pretty easily sometime in the first half of this year. And we, we probably get, you know, but more bullish on the index. John, a, sur- um, you know, a, sur- a surveillance question here, John, he's killing me. Mike Wilson needs to understand there's no Peloton in me. I, I was wondering whether there was some Peloton in your tongue. I, I, I don't know what Mike's thinking. Thank, thank no you for Peloton. the confirmation. <laughs> thank you. Continue with the bear case. Mike, Mike, it takes me to my final question. In conversations like these with you in the coming 12 months, will we be talking more about single names with you away from just year-end price targets on the S&P? Is that where the business is going at the moment for you, Mike? Well, we've been doing that. As you know, John, we do have a focus list of 10 stocks and, and it's performed pretty well. It's, it has a macro overlay to it. And right now that list is very defensively oriented. You know, it's it's overweight REITs, it's overweight some of the com, you know services areas, it's it's underweight, you know, consumer discretion. There's nothing in there in consumer discretionary. So, so we're the, I mean, we absolutely uh, think that this is the year of the stock picker. You know, that's, that's the title of our outlook back in November. That doesn't mean it's easy. Okay. Because when you, when the tailwinds are gone, you know, picking stocks is harder. So that's the challenge I think for, for portfolio managers here, but they have to do it. It's going to be idiosyncratic. You got to find the ones who don't have the payback in demand, don't have the overvaluation. Those are two variables to focus on. And you go from there. Mike, let's talk about that group of names next time. Let's start there and do things a let's bit more different. I, I would love to <laughs> do that. Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley. Mike, thank you, sir. Thank you very much, as always. This is a joy. The day that Facebook went public, I had a wonderful conversation with David Kirkpatrick of the Facebook Effect and the wonderful Paul Kodrowski. Those are the kind of people Bloomberg Surveillance talks to about this odd social media space. Leadership there is Brian Weezer. He is global president of business intelligence at Group M. CFA is definitive on measuring the trends that we see in the advertising space across all this new new. Brian, were you surprised by the meta failure, as Dan Ives says, the unmitigated disaster that is Facebook? I wouldn't say overly surprised. I, I think I'm more surprised by the reaction that investors have. I think there's so many factors that are going on. The factors that Facebook cited are probably not the only ones going on. They're also probably being very conservative in the numbers that they're putting forward. Martin Sorrell is trying to rebuild his ad business to take out traditional ad advertising. From this purview, it seems that Google, Amazon, and the rest own the high ground. Is traditional advertising, including on Facebook, is it dead? No, no. I mean, to be clear, Google's numbers were just, just stellar. And I think when we see Amazon later today, the interest we see in retail media and related advertising is just through the roof right now. So, no, not at all. Although, Brian, do you think that Facebook perhaps relies too much on the advertising model, given that 98% of their revenue is derived <laughs> from this source at a time when it, they have a lot of competition? Absolutely, they are an advertising company. And I think that it, it's a mistake to think of them as anything other than that. It's also a mistake to assume that as an advertising company, that in the long run, you can grow faster than the advertising industry, which is a mid-single-digit growth business, typically. Right. It's been elevated. Pandemic probably helped them a lot. But 
Are they more too dependent? Hard to say. I, I, I think that pushing into the metaverse uh, ideas that they were talking about prior to yesterday, at least, they didn't seem to talk about that much. I mean, hey, probably a good diversification idea for them over a multi-decade period of time. Brian, can you parse through what you think is the overreaction to perhaps this sort of uh, existential crisis that people are looking at Facebook and saying perhaps it's obsolete and TikTok is going to take over and it's not going to really remain anything close to what it has been and is right now versus just a cyclical business that is growing and has to grow at a pace that is commensurate with the advertising industry? Yeah, what you said is the long term, ultimately. I think in they're still in a, in a place where there's probably still a decent amount of growth to be had. But I think that the problem is that, you know, Facebook's always had a lot of issues. I mean, the way in which they identify uh, whether or not they're causing performance is always been a bit flawed. Um, the number of users, it's always been overstated by about 20%. I mean, they tell you as much in the, in the K and the Q. There's always been all these issues out there that I don't think investors have properly understood. Um, the latest one, you know, in the in the K just out this morning, um, Thailand is now one of their top markets because Vietnam and uh, uh, I guess Japan are no longer in there. We don't even know what's going on with <laughs> parts of the business and ways we need to know about them. Brian, I know loads of people that have liked the stock. I know very few people that like the company. Is this just like a tobacco name now? It goes X growth. It, you don't really want to touch it, but it still makes a lot of money. And that's why people hold it. It's, it's not a bad characterization. You know, I, I obviously don't talk to uh, investors as much as I used to as a sell-side analyst, but certainly uh, I, I think that that would be a fair sentiment. I think that there are a lot of advertisers, and obviously that's who we do talk to all the time, who believe that Facebook contributes to the outcomes that they want from a media platform. And that's why there is still such a large business for them. Um, but I think that your characterization is not wrong. Brian, it's been too long. Come back soon, buddy. Yeah. I've really yeah. enjoyed that. Out of Group M. Brian Weiser there. Right now we digress and we mix part of this, the pandemic and the medicine, the miracle medicines that have helped all of us through the pandemic. And also look at the hard-nosed ability to run a pharmaceutical company. Rob Davis with tenure at Baxter is president and chief executive officer at Merck. It has been a tumultuous 12 months for Mr. Davis and the venerable company. This is a company with heritage back to the 17th century in Germany. And of course, I know it from the mumps and rubella miracle that Merck conceived in the 60s in the 70s with a wonderful Gordon Douglas. Rob Davis, thrilled to have you with us uh, today. Here's the criticism. You guys missed the Pfizer-Moderna boat. Respond. Well, you know, I look at uh, what the company has done, and I'm proud of our ability to contribute to the COVID-19 <clears throat> situation. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation. And obviously, uh, you know, we brought forward Molnupiravir, which is an important antiviral drug. To, to help in the fight against COVID-19. It reduces the risk of death by over nine, by about 90%. So this is an important addition to the armamentarium. And really, as we think about battling uh, COVID-19, this is an important uh, uh, drug. So we feel good about it. And this is about what do we all do to address this more than it is looking at comparison. When you talk, I, I agree with you totally. When we talk to the medical experts, they are screaming for efficacious drugs for the poor, for those that can't take advantage of mRNA refrigeration or even the expense, how do you dovetail the Merck Research Combine with the ability to once and for all take care of COVID worldwide for the great number unvaccinated? 
Well, and I think this is, that's a great question and so important in how you can think about molnupiravir or antiviral. This is, this is a drug you take orally. Uh, it's, it's, you know, obviously easy to supply, easy to get around the world. And one of the things I'm most proud about what we've done as a company is the, what I think a really creative and first of its kind access strategy to make sure we can right. get this to the parts of the country and around okay. the world that need it. So I feel right. really good about this what we're is doing so now. important. What do you need from Joe Biden to affect this? What do you need from Washington to get your drug and the competition's drugs out to people in the Sahara? Yeah, well, a lot of this is it's not only about what we do with U.S. government. It's about how we partner around the world, like what we did with UNICEF recently. So this is a global effort, not just a U.S. effort. But I do think, importantly, we need to help people understand the the efficacy of these drugs, the safety of these drugs, and get the message out about how you can get them. And that's really what we are trying to do, is make sure people understand how can they find them and how can they take them, because they do make a difference. If you look... Uh, we still have in the U.S. 2,000 people dying a day from COVID-19. And you have a drug in molnupiravir that reduces the risk of death 90%. We can make a difference. We just have to continue to get the message out there. Rob, how difficult is it to determine how much to charge for this, given the public health need for it and the fact that the U.S. government is really uh, stomaching most of the bill? Yeah, well, a lot of this, we look at what is both the value proposition we bring and the availability of the relative governments around the world to be able to give access to their to their own populations. And so we actually put in place a tiered pricing strategy aimed at what is the affordability based on economic conditions in the local market to make sure we can give access to the patients that need it while ensuring we also continue to make the, the, the necessary returns to invest for the next innovation down the road. There's, there's been criticism uh, around vaccines for uh, influenza, for other viruses, as not being particularly profitable for a lot of companies. And yet here we are having this be one of the biggest health crises that we've seen in modern history. How do we sort of reframe how we think about vaccine development after it has not been a hot spot for a lot of companies uh, over the years? Well, I think what we just have to keep making sure everyone understands that vaccines in general are one of the greatest health contributions that have ever been made. If you look at the people and the lives that have been impacted by avoiding disease, it, it affects everyone in the United States, everyone around the world. We talked a little bit about MMR. You think about the, the number of childhood diseases adult diseases we've avoided. So it starts with understanding the importance of this as part of driving for a healthy population and then looking at what is the returns necessary to ensure that people continue to want right. to invest capital behind that. And that's what we're very much focused on. Rob, cancer drugs cost $50,000. And of course, you guys, and I'm going to mention your good competition, Bristol-Myers are iconic in cancer treatments as well. Your pill for COVID has a treatment price of roughly $700. That is chump change compared to what it costs to hospitalize an unvaccinated person in America. Can you explain to our audience why Merck and Joe Biden can't get on the same page to take your drug and solve the unvaccinated problem? 
Well, and I think, you know, it is a matter of looking at partnering with U.S. government. The U.S. government is ordering. We've actually uh, uh, delivered already to the U.S. government. We're going to deliver about uh, in total three million courses of the drug by the roughly about actually the end of this week. So we are working with the government. They are supporting us. I think it's just about us collectively getting the message out there and ensuring that the drugs are, are in the, the locations where patients can, can get access to them. And that's where we're we're focusing our partnership with U.S. government to try to drive that message. Rob Davis, thank you, sir. Wonderful to have you on thank the program, you. the CEO of Merck. We need to re- recalibrate. We yeah. need to calm down. There's no one better to do that with. And Stephen Rusciuto, he's been at Mizzou Securities since Arthur Burns was chairman. <laughs> and he joins us this morning, we hope, with some perspective. Stephen, we're over a barbecue this weekend, getting ready for Super Bowl a week from now, and everybody's under massive anxiety attack. How do you calm them down about these unique economic times? Well, it, it, it's very, very simple. The reason why I think it, it's such a unique economic time is because this is one of the few times um, in modern history, for those who haven't been out around as long as I have, thank you, Tom, for mentioning that, mm-hmm. um, to remember that this is one of the few times where monetary and fiscal policy are working in coordination. You know, since Paul Volcker, through Alan Greenspan, Janet Yellen, um, Ben Bernanke, and then eventually the early parts of Jerome Powell, monetary and fiscal policy tended to move in opposite directions. Um, and this was done primarily because the emphasis at the time was based on controlling inflation to uh, achieve an environment where you could have maximum sustainable employment. Um, in August of 2020, the Federal Reserve switched, switched that around to maximum employment to achieve average inflation. And to a great extent, even though they've, they've backed away from a good portion of that shift, they haven't backed away from it completely. And the net result is this is a particular time where in March of 2020, both policy levers were going to accommodation. As a result, we had a rapid recovery that got us back to the pre-recession level in GDP in one year's time. And now we've got the alternative where both policy levers are being pulled back, i.e. slowing the economy. And the deceleration in the economy is going to be quick and powerful. And, and people aren't really grappling, having difficulty grappling yeah. with both of these switches. And this is what's happening. This is the first time in modern history we've had them both going in the reverse direction at exactly the same time. All right. That doesn't sound like supportive of economic growth here. And I know you're a little bit, well, I would say more than a little bit, you're much more conservative than I think a lot of folks are out there in terms of your GDP call. Sure. Give us your thoughts about how you think economic growth will slow. What's the trajectory? Well, I mean, let's take a quarterly pattern of growth because I think that lays it out the easiest. Um, you know, we had 6.9% growth in, in the four, fourth quarter of last year. You know, almost 5% of that was inventory. Um, I, I, my forecast for Q1 is 4% growth, Q2 is 3% growth, Q3 is 2.5% growth, and Q4 is 2.25% growth. Essentially, I have us getting back to that post-financial crisis, pre-COVID, shallow growth trajectory by the end of this year. The Federal Reserve wouldn't have you getting there until 2024. And the consensus wouldn't have you getting there until the end of 2023. So I'm actually a year ahead of everybody yeah. else. So you're right. I'm much more conservative. What's the glide path of inflation with a Rizzuto call? 
Well, that that becomes the interesting thing. We, we think, you know, because there are lags in inflation, um, inflation takes a little bit longer to, to start to unwind. But we think between April and June of this year, you're going to start seeing the inflation numbers begin to roll over. Yeah. The average numbers, unfortunately, will still be high. But right. by 2023, we're back down into that 2% yeah. growth trajectory. Chart of the day, Paul. I, yep. I mentioned this on TV and I mentioned it now on radio. Charts work on radio. Is <laughs> Kit Juke Sakjen with a beautiful chart of the five year, five year forward CPI swap. Yeah. And it, it's not a plunge, it's not a rollover, but it's the ebbings in September and October of the guesstimate of what inflation is going to do. It's yeah, that's already what, beginning to ebb. All right, that's what people are certainly hoping for, I think. Hey, Steve, the Build Back Better doesn't seem to be uh, having much support in Washington, D.C. How much does that figure into your GDP forecast? Oh, it's a big, big portion of it. Um, you know, we've assumed Build Back Better is not going to get done. So the reality is the fiscal consolidation that we're talking about here is a function of the fact that the American Rescue Program created an environment where people were receiving child tax credits um, in cash and in the year that they were supposed to receive it rather than as a refund in the following year when they filed their taxes. Because they all got their refunds last year um, in, in real time, now when you go into the period where you start filing your tax returns, suddenly you're in a position where you're not getting a refund. Not only that, you're not getting the cash infusion from the $300 per child check. In addition to that, the rally we saw in the equity markets late last year, uh, which really pushed things to very, very aggressive levels in the fourth quarter, created a lot of capital gains for individuals who have to make estimated payments. So essentially, the budget yeah. deficit in 2022 is going to be about a trillion dollars lower than it was in 2021. That's a big fiscal drag. Too short a visit. Let's do it again. Steve Shudo in Missouri this morning. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.